reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello everybody and welcome to Classroom Psychology. I'm your host, Cora. Thanks so very much for joining me. You are very, very welcome here. Let's get together and see if we can't understand a bit more about gender diversity together. And this week, as with every time we come together, I think we're going to do this fortnightly, so every other week we're going to come together and ask a question that is posed by our dear listener often. Well, probably not listening, let's face it, Suella Braveman's not going to be listening to my podcast. Uh, But, you know, uh, who knows? Uh, Posed by a public figure, often in the form of a confident declaration, you know, significantly putting their weight behind a statement. Uh, But we're going to take it for the question that it is. We're going to ask it of the scientific literature and we're going to see if we can't find some kind of scientific consensus around an answer together. This week, we have then uh, Attorney General Suella Braverman, now Home Secretary, uh, when she was Attorney General, talking about trying to understand the law around the Equality Act, particularly when it came to children and young people. And she had some interesting ideas about how gender works for children and young people. Let's take a listen. Suella Braverman. It's important to be clear that what, what are scientifically tested and established facts and what are questionable beliefs. In my view, a primary school where they are teaching eight or nine-year-old pupils, uh, year four children, key words such as transgender, pansexual, asexual, gender expression, intersex, gender fluid, gender dysphoria, questioning or queer, would be falling foul of government guidance. Nor is it age appropriate to teach four-year-olds that people can change sex or gender. In line with Department for Education guidance, primary schools do not need to set exercises relating to children's self-identified gender. In these instances, schools, who may be well-intentioned but misinformed, are breaching their duty of impartiality and indoctrinating children into a one-sided and controversial view of gender. Thanks so much to Suella for such an amazing question, posed as they often are in the form of very confident declaration using you know, if I might say some emotive language describing the indoctrination of children there, but we'll take it for the question that we know it was intended to be considered and we will do our best to answer them. I suppose the question that this represents is, can we teach children to do gender wrong? And that's a really interesting, useful question, I think. Is it possible to teach children to do gender wrong? And more specifically, perhaps... Is the transgender community actually evidence of us teaching children to do gender wrong? This question has a very interesting scientific origin. In the 50s and 60s, uh, we were sort of coming off the back of of behaviorist approaches to understanding why people did anything, really. And we started to evolve our understanding of like a lot of behaviors into social cognitive views. And social cognitive views of of behavior effectively suggested that people were motivated to achieve goals and could learn from other people. So they wouldn't only learn from the outcome of their own behaviors in pursuit of those goals, that's sort of a bit more behaviorist, but they would learn from seeing other people pursue those same goals. They'd see how effective those behaviors were and they'd apply it to themselves, trying those behaviors out too. And when it comes to gender, this was crystallized into the social cognitive view of gender. Kohlberg is a classic, brilliant theorist. 
uh, who, one of the originators of this idea, applied to gender. And what this idea sort of crystallized in was a view that children, in fact, all people, but particularly children, had an innate drive to do gender well, a kind of mastery motivation, if you like, to do gender well. And so they would go through ages and stages of understanding of how gender worked from what Kohlberg described as gender identity, sort of a, a child's ability to name and label their own gender through to gender constancy and gender stability and understanding that gender persisted over time and that actually it persisted even though somebody might dress in different ways, their underlying gender was the same. Kohlberg described this as kind of a correct understanding of gender in inverted commas. But as children's gender sort of uh, their understanding of how gender can be expected to function evolved over time between the ages of like, you know, from four all the way up till sort of six, seven, eight. They would then have a motivation to do their gender well. Now, of course, the challenge here is how do children know what gender they are? And in gender schema theory and in sort of social cognitive views of gender, children were told, Right. How do they know what gender they are? Well, they were told. And how do they know how to do gender well? Well, they are, they learn it from the models in their environment. Now you can see where this is going, right? Social cognitive views of gender suggest, therefore, that in order to learn to do gender well, children need a good range of models in their environment. They need masculine and feminine models to be able to understand how to do gender well. How do I be a good man in the world? Well, I look to my dad. How do I be a good woman in the world? Well, I look to my mum. And this, you know, you can see where this is going, right? Like it privileges a sort of nuclear, uh, a nuclear family. It privileges kind of uh, uh, parenting that's both you know, masculine and feminine as both men and women in the parenting dyad. And that's not ideal in and of itself. But we'll come to, you know, we'll come to the challenges to this idea in a moment. But this is the fundamental notion, right? That children learn from their environment how to do gender well. Now, this evolved uh, through Bem and Martin and Halverson. Bem in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, kind of invented essentially gender schema theory. Now, schema theory may well have come across before, the notion that we have little bubbles of knowledge that sort of contain all the relevant information about a particular domain, they're sort of connected to each other, and we populate those little bubbles of knowledge with information drawn from our environment and our understanding. And when it comes to gender schema theory, Bem hypothesized that we had schema for gender. Uh, Sandra Bem, legendary feminist researcher, understood something that I think nobody really appreciated in the mainstream sphere. It never really took off in the public zeitgeist. And I think the reason it didn't take off in the public zeitgeist is because it challenged prevailing homo homophobic wins, essentially. Bem said that it wasn't about kind of male and female schema so much, but about masculinity and femininity. And Bem suggested that actually it is possible for people to be sort of cross-gender identified, to have a gender sort of schema of femininity that they felt more connected to themselves than masculinity, even if they were assigned male at birth. She was also one of the first people to kind of suggest that people can be both 
masculine and feminine in a ter- in a sort of position she described as androgynous, and they could be neither masculine or feminine, a, a position she described as undifferentiated, but in modern terms we might describe that as a kind of non-binary position, a position of gender that sort of sits well outside of either masculinity or femininity. Now, Bem's work, fascinating as it was, couldn't really sort of latch onto the public zeitgeist. I think because we just had such strong, prevailing, homophobic overtones of like a view that cisgender experiences and heterosexual experiences were both right and moral, and that those experiences were healthy, and that other experiences were implicitly, inherently unhealthy. Now, some of the evidence, basically the early evidence was kind of saying that these undifferentiated and androgynous positions actually came with some psychological advantages. But if you looked at the outcomes data, we could see that some of those positions were associated with negative outcomes. But of course, the reason why may well be, as Ilan Mayer describes, that you know we have both proximal and distal stresses associated with being in unusual places on gender spectra that uh, essentially being a member of any marginalized minority group is an experience of marginalization. And those experiences come with uh, you know, distal and proximal stresses that lead to negative outcomes. The, the sort of distal stresses being the sort of societal uh, experiences of marginalization and the internal homophobia, internal transphobia, internalized from those societal experiences that, that themselves then create stress inside ourselves. This is kind of the the proximal stresses of minority stress theory. Ilan Mayer, do take a look at Ilan's work. It's uh, absolutely amazing. It uh, was originally applied to sexuality, to, to sort of to relationship diversity and to those marginalization experiences. But actually, it's been applied to all kinds of marginalized identities. Really interesting to take a look at. So, while some of these rarer places on the gender spectrum might have been associated with some more negative outcomes, it might not have been because of people's experience of those being like implicitly mental health problems. Uh, in fact, it almost certainly wasn't. Some of the most recent research uh, starts to highlight that you know, transition-related support for transgender adults uh, supports them to have, uh, you know, in many cases, normative mental health experiences um, and certainly to sort of alleviate their emotional distress. We'll come to that in a future episode. Affirmative care is its whole other question. But actually, what we find is that these sort of rarer places are probably associated with more negative outcomes because we have a society that privileges cisgender experiences, as we've already explained. So agenda schema theory, we have this notion that children develop schema around masculinity and femininity or men and women, and then they apply them to themselves by somebody coming along and saying, hey, you're a boy or hey, you're a girl, right? So we have adults telling children what gender they are, reinforcing that notion in their own mind, and then teaching them how to be good men and good women in the world. Children learn apply those schema to themselves, and then do the things of gender. I don't know. And they behave in accordance with the norms and rules of the gender that they have been assigned. 
Within gender schema theory and social cognitive views of gender, at the heart of it, there's a view of gender as primarily learned, sculpted by the environment rather than uh, born. Now, this is a really interesting idea, and it actually comes with a bunch of problems, right? You can see immediately where these problems are going to come from, yeah? So the the major problems are that we've got a system that suggests that Actually, children need both male and female members of their family, or at the very least, they need male and female role models in their environment in order to learn how to do gender well. Uh, otherwise, you know, if they don't have the right role models, then how can they learn how to do it well? And they only know what gender they are by people telling them. And the socialization of their gender experience, how they learn how to do gender well, the ultimate logical conclusion of that is that we can do that wrong. And children who have sort of minority experiences around sexuality or gender diversity, right? Those children who grow up who are not heterosexual, those children who grow up who are not cisgender, the implication of this model is that it's a consequence of how they were raised. And that's a really dangerous idea. It's dangerous because it's sort of reached its heyday in the 1970s and 80s. And in that time, we had this very striking homophobia in society. In 1987, the British Social Attitude Survey highlighted that 75% of the UK population believed that homosexuality was always or mostly wrong. Now, that is in and of itself pretty remarkable. But of course, if you combine this with the conclusions of social cognitive explanations of gender and by extension, sexuality, right? You have one of the very, very dangerous ideas of our time, the idea that if you can raise a child like cisgender, if you can raise a child correctly, in inverted commas, then by extension, you can raise a child gay or you can raise a child trans. And given the moral superiority in the public zeitgeist of heterosexual and cisgender experiences, there might be an impulse to protect, in inverted commas, children from those outcomes by changing how children are raised and by ensuring that through public policy, we can socially mandate gender and sexuality uh, diversity, like sexual and gender diverse experiences, we can mandate those out of existence. And this set the context for Section 28 in 1988, right? Psychology was sort of, I think people like Sandra Ben were trying to say, actually, these marginalized experiences, these unusual experiences in the gender spectrum are kind of okay. Uh, but the voice never really was able to, to reach the public. Uh, it, wasn't able, it wasn't able to inform public policy in the same way because the prevailing winds of uh, homophobia were just too strong. So in 1988, we had Section 28. For those who don't know, Margaret Thatcher and her government put in, a conservative government, 1988, put in place a law that prohibited, in inverted commas, the promotion of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship, end quote. Amazingly, Margaret Thatcher stood in front of a conservative party conference and said the following. In fact, I'm going to grab up Margaret Thatcher's voice here so that you can hear exactly what she says and the applause to which she, with which that kind of message is received. 
I want you to listen out here. Margaret Thatcher's, uh, the point that Margaret Thatcher is making, and I want you to see if you can see any parallels between that and Attorney General Suella Braverman's comments. Here is Margaret Thatcher. Children who need to be able to express themselves in clear English are being taught political slogans. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. And children who need encouragement, and children do so much need encouragement, as so many children, they are being taught that our society offers them no future. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. Children who are being taught they have an inalienable right to be gay are being cheated of a sound start in life. That's an amazing thing to hear now. But it's not wildly dissimilar from the ideas that, you know, Suella Braverman is sort of talking about here. The notion that schools, by talking about gender diversity, are indoctrinating children into a one-sided view of gender. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher saying the same thing, that we need to be protecting children from sexual diversity because we're making more of them confused and potentially we're teaching them that they have an inalienable right to be gay, which of course they do. And they don't have a choice, right? This is something that we have moved on in sexuality very heavily in the public zeitgeist. We understand that sexuality is something that people discover. It's not something that people forge through their experience. While it's possible that people might discover new components of their sexuality over time, maybe it even might evolve for people over time, it's not something over which we have any real control. You cannot raise a child straight and you cannot raise a child gay. We've moved far away from that. But in the 1980s, this law, and by the way, the 1990s and the 2000s, early 2000s, you know, the law was only repealed in 2003 and the legacy of it still, I would argue, sort of sits in, in British culture and British school culture today. You know, for like 20 years, it was basically, or 15 years, it was basically illegal to talk about um sexual diversity in schools, you literally couldn't say it was okay to be gay. People, you know, LGBT plus, QIA plus teachers couldn't talk about their own experiences in school without falling foul of that law. And of course, you know, many of us grew up in that era. I was in school during that time. I had no idea that it was unlawful to talk about sexual and gender diversity. All I knew was that I was being horrendously bullied for being too feminine. <clears throat> I was horrendously bullied and teachers couldn't intervene because they didn't want to be seen as you know, effectively uh, promoting homosexuality in schools. So I had tons of teachers who just didn't intervene when I was going through bullying for like 10, 15 years. No joke. I had to move schools because you know I was being me in the world and I had no idea that my, my, my way of being... You know, what was wild for me was that when I was growing up, I was bullied for being too feminine. People thought I was gay and I was you know, called every homophobic slur you can imagine, but Puff was their favourite. And I had no idea what I was doing that was different or making them think that I was gay. Even now, looking back, you don't really know what I was doing, but something about me was feminine. 
something about my being in the world unconsciously was feminine. Even at such a young, tender age, I was sort of being me in the world and it was falling foul of, you know, these cis-normative, heteronormative rules and norms of the environment that, again, gender-diverse folk, even people, you know, uh, LGBTQIA plus folk in the incomplete as a huge community, all of us fall foul of transgressing those norms just by being ourselves in the world. So it's, it's kind of a bizarre situation to think back on. And what is really interesting is that this model of, of gender, this kind of social cognitive, like this view of gender as primarily kind of sculpted into existence by experience, that model not only, you know, helped to inform Section 28, right? Because, you know, the idea that you can raise a child straight and can raise a child gay, i.e. you can raise a child in heavily inverted commas wrong, and therefore we can, we must protect children from that outcome. That was a direct consequence, I think, of, of these ideas of gender that were popularized by psychologists, right? We put into the world this idea. And that's, you know, that's what good science does, is it gets things wrong and, and grows and changes. But public policy didn't grow and change as the science did. And the science got something dramatically wrong. And that really, this sort of moment in the scientific community as such a pivotal moment really changed how psychologists started to view, like, started to view gender, really. It was a really huge turning point in the 1980s. And that turning point is around the very famous case of David Raymer. Now, I don't know if you've ever come across David Raymer before. You may well have done in undergraduate psychology if you did an undergraduate psychology degree, and or you may have just come across it. There's a, there's a, like, better people than me, better investigative journalists, I am no journalist, better people than me have put some great kind of, um, like, exposés online. There have been some amazing writings by Milton Diamond on the topic. Go check them out. But the cliff notes are this. David Raymer was a young kid in the 1980s, tiny little puppet, at, who was undergoing a circumcision using what I think, if I'm right, was a cauterization tool. And there was an accident. Something went dramatically wrong. Forgive me in advance. We're going to talk a little bit about primary sexual characteristics for a second. So David Raymer's primary sexual characteristics were very badly damaged in this accident. Now, John Money, psychologist, got involved with the case and made this a recommendation, right? So John Money's view was that gender was socialized, not an unpopular view at the time. Gender primarily socialized. Children learn what gender they are by people telling them, and then they develop their own gender schema, their understanding of how gender should work, how to do gender well, and then they would apply it to themselves you know, by virtue of having good role models in the world and learning from them how to do gender well. So John Money's idea was this. He said, we have this kind of perfect opportunity. But David's like primary sexual characteristics have been badly damaged, but we can, from the material that is remaining, construct as normal, you know, as typical female genitalia as we possibly can. We'll give David a girl's name and we will raise David as a girl. David will never know of his gender history. We'll give David 
female pronouns will refer to David consistently as a girl, and David will learn how to be a girl in the world. And as a consequence, you know, gender identity is sculpted, not born. And so Joan, as this young poppet was called, will learn to be a girl in the world and will develop completely normally as a girl. Unfortunately for David, this didn't work. Should have worked, right? Under this model of gender, should have worked. David Ramer should have grown as any typical girl. Now, there was some controversies around the kind of experiments that John Money was doing uh, with uh, David Raymer. Uh, there's also some controversy about uh, some of John Money's kind of publications, early publications on the work. But Milton Diamond went back to see David Raymer and published a bunch of stuff basically highlighting how David Raymer never felt okay as a girl. That David's David experienced what can only be described as gender dysphoria, a kind of existential distress that we've already described, right? Where inside, that's right, that feels like home, that's what I am. David's gender identity was always male, as it is for many people who are assigned male at birth. And by raising David as a girl, we created the context in which David would experience what it's like to be trans, right? David experienced dissonance between that gender identity, that core part of who he was, and his body and the way in which the world related to him. In the end, David Raymer, you know, when he grew, uh, he transitioned to be a boy in the world and learned about his gender history. But his gender history, knowledge of his gender history came after, you know, this kind of the dysphoria that he experienced, not before. And David Raymer kind of got married, had children, and you know, again, trigger warning here. We're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about suicidality for a moment. David Raymer very, very sadly took his own life. Now, you know, it's a very, very tragic case and a very, very tragic story of a young man who had a very complicated life. When it comes to talking about gender. What David teaches us is that, at least in his case, this very interesting naturalistic experiment, well, I mean, naturalistic's a bit of a push, but John Money created the perfect context, the perfect circumstances to test whether we can sculpt somebody's gender identity. And it turns out that we couldn't in this case. It did not work. Now, of course, this is not the, like, this kind of changed how gender diversity was seen uh, in the 1980s, 1990s. It kind of really was a big pivotal moment in understanding gender diversity in psychology. And psychologists from that moment, really, from the 2000s, uh, have been kind of gradually studying gender diversity in a completely renewed way. And in the last 10 years, we've seen this massive explosion in gender diversity research. And there have been two big, like, I suppose two big concepts that have, um, that have put holes, more holes in this view that gender, like that we could raise children wrong in some way, right? The first is uh, Zalizniak's work in 2020. Now, essentially what 
uh, Zalizniak and colleagues did was they did a, a pretty big piece of research asking transgender men and transgender women, adults in the States, about their first memories and then about their first memories of experience of gender dysphoria. So asking adults about when, on average, they had their first experience of dysphoria around their gender. And this is a fascinating piece of research in and of itself, but it is no surprise to the transgender community, you know, in most of the retrospective studies that were done 10, 15 years ago, they found something similar. But this is a very recent, very modern, kind of bit more high quality piece of research And they found essentially that for transgender men in the US, their earliest memory was on average around 4.7, pretty high standard deviation of 2.3 years. So some people at the age of 4.7, but, you know, the average deviation was up to kind of uh, age of six, potentially with their first memories. Their first age for transgender men, that is people assigned female at birth who identify as men in the world and who are men in all the ways that matter. They live their lives as men. They are men in the world in all the ways that matter. The first age that they experienced gender dysphoria was 6.2 years. That's wild. Again, reasonably high standard deviation of 3.1 years which means that it's quite a big range. Again, no surprise, lots of studies now being done with young people themselves and with trans adults retrospectively, finding again, there's a big range at which people experience their first gender knowledge, right? We call that gender knowledge when they recognize that they are transgender or have that kind of strong genders for a cross-gender identification. For transgender women, those assigned male at birth, who identify are as women and are women in the world in all the ways that matter, they have their first memory around 4.5, not particularly different from the trans guys, and they have first gender knowledge, you know, their first gender dysphoria happened at, on average, 6.7. Again, standard deviation at 3.6 years, it ranges quite heavily. So around the age of six, six and a half, you know, we see quite a lot of people experiencing gender dysphoria for the first time. And they lived, transgender men and transgender women, lived for a mean of 22 years for trans men and 27 years for trans women with untreated gender dysphoria before commencing even social, that's non-surgical, social or medical transition, non-surgically. Amazing. They lived for between 22 and 27 years before they started to transition on average. That's wild. What that tells us is that you know, for these young people, when they were six, up until when they were in their 30s, when they started to transition, or in their late 20s, they existed with a huge amount of gender dysphoria in the world. And trust me, trust me, If there was a way to not be trans, those of us in that context would have found it. If we could sculpt our gender identities, if while I was being bullied, they would have found a way to sculpt their gender identity to be more typical if they could. And the fact that they couldn't, the fact that their gender dysphoria continued on, they're still trans, right? And so that tells us something about how, at least for the trans community, Gender identity is, I think, born and not made. 
Now, moreover, Turban and colleagues, and you know, the age as well, like at six years was the first time they experienced gender dysphoria. Like, do we really think that they were being sculpted by their environment at that age into being something unusual? Now, Turban and colleagues also, in 2020, fantastic study, huge, 27, nearly 28,000 transgender survey respondents in the US, right? 40% uh, were assigned male at birth, were trans women, majority were trans dudes. Now, for these people, a good chunk of them, about 20% had experienced conversion therapy at some point, right? It's 4,000 people. Again, trigger warning here. Conversion therapy was associated with psychological distress. It was associated with lifetime suicide attempts. And it was associated with with lifetime suicide attempts, even more so for those who experienced conversion therapy before the age of 10. But these folks were still transgender. They'd been through conversion therapy and they were still transgender. You know what this tells us? It tells us again for the trans community, gender is born and not made. Much like sexuality, I would suggest we cannot sculpt gender identity, at least for this community. Now, here's another question. The question that Suella is really getting onto, there are two, two other points that we need to be focusing on. We're not going to be able to do them today, but we will come to them. They're legitimate questions. One is, okay, for the trans community, maybe gender identity is you know more fixed. Maybe it's more difficult, like it doesn't get sculpted. But for those people who are not trans, is there a possibility that we might make more people confused by having sort of more public acceptance of the trans community or by having friends who are more trans or by having family like who are more supportive of the idea they might be trans? Is there a possibility that we could be making more people trans through those experiences? That's a legitimate question we're going to have to come to. And the other question is about the kind of, there seems to be a bit of an overrepresentation of like autism in the out transgender community, right? Not necessarily, I mean, bearing in mind that this is in the out transgender community, right? There does seem to be an overrepresentation there. And we seem to be having a lot of, like in the Netherlands and in the UK, this sort of uptick of transgender girls, uh, transgender boys, sorry, those who were assigned female at birth who identify as boys in the world, there seems to be an uptick of those in adolescence looking for transition-related healthcare. Now, we need to understand all of these to be able to understand the answer to Suella's question in full. But for the time being, I think we've got a pretty good answer here around the trans community proper. By trying to create a context where we don't talk about gender identity in schools, we create a context in which the transgender community has no language to describe their experience. We put them at risk of, you know, being unable to find a community in the world. And by creating a world in which, you know, we privilege cisgender and heterosexual experiences, we create a world of boundaries that Trans folks have to transgress just to exist in the world. If we talk about gender diversity in schools, 
then these trans folks who, you know, on average have their first experience of gender dysphoria at age six or seven, and are many of them experiencing gender dysphoria into adolescence, you know, if we can talk about gender diversity, then we can start to create a world in which these young people can understand and describe their own experiences. And honestly, having a language to describe your own experience and then share that experience and realize that there are other people out there around you with a similar experience, really, that's the first step to creating a world where these folk can find a place to belong. And belonging is a fundamental human need. Thanks so very much for joining me. This is Classroom Psychology. Oh, together, you know what? Let's create a world where everyone can find a place to belong. I look forward to seeing you in the next one.